Our scripture reading this morning comes from the 24th chapter of Exodus, verses 1 through 11. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. And then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people. They beheld God and ate and drank. This is the living word of God for us today. Aren't you glad you came on Exodus 24 week? It's actually a marvelous passage. I know there's some things in there that just sound a little weird. We're going to talk about those, and we're going to find a lot of life in this text this morning. I really believe that. If you weren't here last week, you're coming into week two of a new series. It's going to be a short series called A Generous Table. We'll be here for just about five weeks, so this is week two of five. The whole idea behind this table is to trace, or the series rather, is to trace the theme of the table throughout the scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And here's what we've come to believe. We believe that this image, this symbol, this idea, this picture of the table is one of the most profound and important and applicable pictures in the entire Bible. And we believe it relates a lot to the mission that God is giving us here, helping people find wholehearted life in Jesus. So let me recap last week for those of you that missed it or those of us that need a refresher. Lloyd started in Psalm 78, now think about that. That's literally the the center of the center book of the Bible. He started in the very center of the Bible. He said, there's an interesting question in Psalm 78. And the context is, this is a question that the Hebrew people asked when they're wandering through a desert, waiting on God to provide for them, wondering what in the world's happened that their lives are not working out the way they thought their lives should work out. And they asked this question in verse 19 of Psalm 78. Can God spread a table in the wilderness? And Lloyd said, you know, isn't that actually really the fundamental question that that, that we're all asking? Like, God, can you you set a table for me in in this, in my struggle, in my place, in my emptiness, in my loneliness, in my provision or lack of provision? Can you set a table for me 
in my wilderness. And I remember Lloyd saying, he said, you know, something's going to hit you this week and you're going to ask that question. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. And it did for me. I was like in the middle of the week and I came on some stuff just in my own heart. Just some, just some ugliness inside right here in my own heart that just kind of reared its ugly head. And I was just, I was kind of knocked off my rhythm a little bit. And I thought about that. And I thought, God, can you spread a table for me in my wilderness? And then I had a phone call conversation with a friend of mine whose marriage just got wrecked because of some betrayal in that relationship. And then I had another conversation with a friend of mine who just moved to a new place to take a new job in a new house and two or three months into it, he's now laid off in an organizational restructure. And I'm like, what am I I'm done? Can God spread a table in the wilderness? And as Lloyd showed us last week, the answer to that question from Genesis to Revelation is an emphatic yes. He can, he does, he has. And it's actually the story of the whole Bible. God's provision for you is best displayed through the image of the table. Even more than the cross, you know? And that was kind of controversial, I thought, when Lloyd said that last week. The more I think about it, the more I think about the Bible, and the more we talk about it, the more I'm convinced. I think the primary image of what God would have for us, wholehearted life in Jesus, is a table. Now, this morning, I want to dig a little bit deeper in this concept. And I want to say, not only... Is the table representative of God's provision in your life, which was last week's sermon? I want to talk about that it's actually representative of something else too. and something even more, I, I think, even closer to the heart of what all of us need. Closer to the core desire of every single human being. Because believe it or not, know it or not, there's actually something more than stuff, more than provision that you need from God. The passage we're going to focus on today, which you've already heard read, is it, it is strange, but it's also incredible. It's wonderful. It's powerful. It's one of the most important passages in the Old Testament, and that's why we've chosen to spend some time in it. Before we get there, though, I want to set it up, and I want to set it up two ways. The first is I want to get you in a, in a certain mental space. I want you to think about your favorite meals throughout the year. Now, what do I mean about that? I'm not talking about just your favorite food. I'm talking about what meals during the year do you most anticipate and look forward to? For me, there's about four. Thanksgiving meal, Christmas dinner, Easter meal, and the 4th of July cookout. <laughs> kind of might be my favorite. I don't know. But I want you to think about how actually our, the rhythms of our years, kind of, you can kind of, season by season, they kind of center on a meal. Isn't that really interesting? I started thinking about that. I was like, what's so significant to me about those meals? Well, the more I thought about it, the more I realized, you know, at, when I'm around the table in those moments, Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, et cetera, it's hard to really separate out the food on the table from the people around the table. A lot of what makes those meals meaningful to us is not just what we eat, but whom we eat them with. And so in our household, like Thanksgiving meal, for example, um, we're using recipes that, that, that our moms, my wife and my moms and grandmothers passed down to us. And, and sometimes they're able to be with us around the table, sometimes they're not, but they're still present around the table in a sense because the food, hard to separate the food from the people. Around the table is our family, maybe some close friends, maybe some extended family that's in town, right? This is the true, same for many of us. We gather around a table and there's that sacred moment right before the food is eaten where we thank God for providing not just the food, but the blessing of the community around it. 
You can't really fully separate out the food on the table from the people around the table in those particular meals. No matter how good the food is, it'd be unimaginable to eat it alone. Can you imagine that? Let's have Thanksgiving dinner by yourself. You know, you can't imagine that. Now, from that place, I want you to now think about the story of Scripture. In particular, I want you to think about the very first table that God spread for his people, which takes us back to what Lloyd talked about last week in Genesis 1 and 2. And in fact, you can think about the Garden of Eden as the very first table that God spread for his people. Now, I've been thinking about why did God do that? Like, here's what I mean. Why did God create anything? Here's what we know theologically. The Bible teaches us that, that God doesn't need anything outside himself in order to be whole. That's what makes him different than us, by the way. Here's what else we know. God exists in perfect community, which we call the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, a fellowship, a community of love. God exists in that. So here's why I think God created. Some of this is speculation, but a lot of it is just looking at what God's word says. The best answer I've come up with is God created in order to share. He created in order to invite us into that community of love. In other words, he spread a table and created human beings to sit with him around the table to fellowship. So he created the garden and it says, I will give to you every good thing in this garden for food to eat. And they walked in the presence of God in the garden. You see, the garden actually was the very first table that God spread in the wilderness. What kind of wilderness did God spread it in? The wilderness of the formless and void space that existed before God said, let there be. Now, there is a sense that you cannot fully separate out the gifts of God, food, from the giver of the gifts, God himself. But in Genesis chapter three, that's exactly what Adam and Eve tried to do. Think about it this way. They knowingly ate the one thing that God said was not a gift for them. And in so doing, what they essentially said was, was, God, listen, the table that you've spread for us is nice, but it's not enough. And in, in that choice, they, they chose independence over community. The fellowship of the garden was fractured. Adam and Eve were relationally separated from God. They, they, they had some internal fragmentation themselves. They immediately felt naked and shame and exposed. They were relationally separated from each other. There's even a sense that they're relationally separated from the creation around them. You know, now they're going to interact differently with the earth and other, other kinds of things. It's fascinating the, the, what happened to fracture the wholeness that was in the garden around this table. And then the story of the rest of the Bible, starting, you know, Genesis 3 all the way to the end of Revelation, is God's plan to bring his people back to the table to bring his people back into the table of his provision and his presence, to be with us. Now, the plan involves two acts. Act one is the story of God creating a nation that he could be with. We call that act the Old Testament. Testament just means covenant. Covenant is a bond between two parties. Act two is the story of God creating the church to enable his people to be with him, New Testament, New Covenant. 
both the old and the new center around a table. And that's what I want to show you this morning. And this is why I'm excited to be in Exodus 24. Now, we're going to focus on the first covenant. We're going to focus on the Old Testament. Next week, we'll focus more on the New Testament with, with, with Lloyd. But I want you to see something in Exodus 24. This passage is the specific moment when God renewed fellowship with his people. And he did it around a table. And that's what I want you to see. Now, with that in mind, open to Exodus 24. And as you're turning there, let me give you a brief backstory to catch you up from where we are. God's chosen people, Israel, had been enslaved in Egypt. God set them free through a series of miraculous uh, interventions, which he performed through Moses. After they were free from Egypt and crossed the Red Sea and all the dramatics of that, he led them to a mountain, Mount Sinai. And there at the mountain, God came down to be with his people. The people were at the bottom. God dwelled the mountain and it was this incredible cloud with lightning and it was just this dramatic scene. And then God calls Moses to go up and God explains to Moses, I want to form a relational bond, a community, a fellowship with these people. And here are the rules of the covenant. Here's what I'm going to do. And here's what I'm going to ask the people to do to be in relationship together. And when we get to Exodus 24, what we actually see is the ceremony that sealed the covenant. That's why this is such a big deal. It's like God had rescued the bride. He'd led them to a place where he was present. And then he says, now the marriage ceremony can happen. Now we can become one. And Exodus 24 is that exact ceremony. Uh, it's the climatic moment, a climatic event in the nation of Israel. Up to this point, at least, maybe in the entire Old Testament. Uh, and what it does is it puts into context the Exodus event with all the miracles and Pharaoh and Moses and you know the Red Sea and all that. That was just a means to an end. The end is the communion, the community, the fellowship, the covenant. God once again joining with his people like it was in the garden. Now, let's jump into our text, Exodus 24. We'll take it a little bit at a time and I'll just give some comments as we go. I know it's a long passage, so I'll, I'll just explain a few things. Verse one, then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel in worship from afar. Now, you know, a lot of names, what's going on here is we know who Moses is. Aaron is the priest related to Moses. Uh, Nad, uh, what, are, what are these two names? Nadab and Abihu were the sons of Aaron. And then you've got 70 of the elders. So you have 74 people that represent the whole. So you can't have all of them come up on the mountain. God's gonna say, this is the representative group that I'm, that I'm gonna be with in this covenant ceremony. Verse two. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. So there's actually three tiers that's going on. Moses is going to go all the way to the top, closest to God, and I'll explain why in a minute. Then you have the, the other 73 people, or however that much that is, that will be a little lower than Moses, but still on the mountain, and then the people down below. Now, why does Moses get to approach in this kind of way? Is God playing favorites? Well, not exactly. You see, Moses was designated as the mediator between God and the nation. Moses, by the way, is a hugely significant character in the Old Testament. 
He gets more um, pages about him than anyone else in the Old Testament other than David. Why is Moses so significant? Because he was so great? Because he had it all together? No, 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 no. Because God chose him to be a mediator. Here's what that meant. God wanted to lead the nation, but he chose to lead the nation through a man, through a person, through a human being, through Moses. The people came to know God through a person, Moses. So there's this mediation going on. It's very interesting. Now think of it this way. When Moses was at his best, his will and God's will were melded together. To such a degree that there are parts of the whole Exodus narrative when Moses is saying or doing something and the text says, and God said or did. And it's actually Moses is the one saying and doing. He's fascinating. He's unique in all the Old Testament. He's this mediator person. He comes off the mountain. He's literally glowing with the glory of God. You're like, is that God or is that not God? No, it's not God, but there's some God on him. He was the mediator. Now, we get to verse three, and what I want to do now is I want to walk you through the ceremony itself, which sounds weird to our ears. Okay, so I'm going to read verse three all the way to verse eight, and then I'll explain what's going on here. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars, according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, how weird is some of that, right? Now, I want you to imagine something. You know, wedding ceremonies don't seem strange to us because we've all participated in them and they're part of our culture. But imagine someone from a culture who maybe had never even understood or known or heard of the institution of marriage suddenly coming into one of our marriage ceremonies, he'd have some questions. He'd be like, well, why are the men standing on one side, the women standing on another side? And what's with the, the, the rings and the, the vows and the reading from the sacred book? You know, what's the meaning of all this? That's essentially what's happening here. There's a formal covenant ceremony. And I want to make just a, a couple of remarks to help you see what's happening Moses built an altar and 12 pillars. And they would have stood opposite from each other. The altar represented God. The 12 pillars represented the people. You see what's happening here? Think about a marriage ceremony. You've got the groom, you've got the bride. So you've got God, you've got the people represented by these 12 pillars and God represented by the altar. Now, blood goes on both of them. Did you catch that? It's very, very interesting. Now, blood was almost always used in covenant ceremonies in the ancient Near East. So this wouldn't have been weird for them. This would have been like, oh, we're making a covenant. I get it. Half of the blood went on the altar, which symbolizes God. The other half went in the basins and then was later sprinkled on the people. And by the way, scholars are unsure if it was literally on the people themselves or on the pillars that represented the people. Either way, the significance, the symbolism was very, very clear. 
Half the blood on God, half the blood on us. We're entering into a blood covenant with each other, we're entering a relationship. I know that kind of sounds a little archaic to our ears, but this is exactly what was going on. God, in a sense, was using a communication language that the people of that culture were very familiar with. Now, just like our wedding ceremonies, there were vows pronounced as well. I want you to look at verse seven again, if we could put verse seven back on the screen. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. Those are God's vows. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and be obedient. The people's vows. So when I perform a wedding ceremony, I always start with the groom when it comes to the vows and then the bride. So there's a sense. God has spoken through this covenant. That's his promise. The people say, we promise as well. All that he just said, we're going to do as well. Now let's move into the rest of the story. What happens after this formal ceremony happens? Start in verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. What's with that last phrase? I mean, there's a lot of interesting things in this passage. We won't have time for all of it. But why, why does the narrator go out of his way to say he did not lay his hand? I mean, why would he? He's the one that called them up there, right? The remarkable things about this is that they saw God and were not killed. Again, that sounds weird to our ears. But Exodus 33:20 states, no one can see God and live. He's just that, that holy, that other, that different, that powerful, that mighty. No one can see God and live, and yet here they see him, and they're unharmed. Now they see just a part of him, his feet, but there's some significance to this, and you, you see that the narrator's going out of his way to say they survived. What was different about them? They were now in a covenant relationship with God. The blood of the covenant had covered them, and they could now experience God in a new way. There was relational closeness that did not exist prior to the covenant. Now look at the last half of verse 11. I, I saved it because it's where we're gonna get this image of the table and it's so powerful. Verse 11, second half. They beheld God and ate and drank. So of all the things that they could have done right after this formal covenant union ceremony had taken place, they ate a meal. They ate and they drank. The whole ceremony led to the fellowship meal. It was the highest point, both literally and figuratively, of the ceremony. They ate and drank with God. How interesting is this? In Exodus 24, the whole point of the ceremony is to bring these two parties into relational union. How was that symbolized and celebrated? With food around a table, community. Does this remind you of anything? This is the garden being in part restored. Isn't it fascinating? Think about this. 
food is how Adam and Eve went wrong. And food is how God brings mankind back. This is the table. Now, I want to move beyond Exodus 24 because what happens after this is really, really interesting in the history of the nation. This meal that we just read about in Exodus 24, 11 becomes a pattern. It becomes representative of many more meals the nation of Israel would eat in the presence of God. In fact, the book of the covenant stipulated that three times a year, all the people of Israel were to gather together for a festival meal. Here are the three. Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles. Now they each had different historic significance and they were coming at it from different angles, but they're really all three doing the same thing, bringing the people back around the table. Literal tables for a meal. Now, what I learned in my study this week that actually made my mind just kind of go was the type of offering that was offered during these three festivals is called a fellowship offering. I'm not going to get all technical here. There's three different kinds of offerings that the Book of the Covenant stipulates. But a fellowship offering was what they did during these three festival meals. The unique thing about a fellowship offering is the meat, the animal, is not consumed in the fire. The animal is taken to the altar sacrificed at the altar, but then rather than consumed, the meat would be cut up by the priests and sent home to be eaten around a table. And that sacrifice, that meal, that animal, that meat, that food is what these people were enjoying around a table together. And by the way, there was always more than your family alone could eat. And the covenant stipulated you need to eat that animal, all the meat, within two days of the sacrifice. Which now makes a lot of sense from a health standpoint. But it also is symbolic. God's saying, look, this sacrifice is not for me to consume. This sacrifice is a provision for you and your family and your friends. So gather around a table and eat. And here's the most amazing, important part of this. In the book of the covenant, in Deuteronomy, when it talks about these festival meals, here's what it says. It says, you are to eat the meal in the presence of the Lord. I want you to let that sink in for a little minute. Each of these major festivals was a moment the people ate and drank with God, with the Lord. It's not just some symbolic phrase, like whatever you do, do in the name of the Lord, you know, it's not actually what there's going after. There was something unique. There was something particular about the presence of God around these tables as the men and women ate the fellowship offering. By the way, fellowship offerings are sometimes called peace offerings. What is that about? Well, how about bringing two parties that are not at peace with each other around a table together to be one once again? Peace offerings. Each of these festivals was a moment of communion 
between God and Israel that sort of replicated or hearkened back to that moment on the mountain where Moses and Aaron and the others ate and drank with God. Now, what can we learn from all of this? Like, this is not our culture. This is Old Testament stuff. This is Old Covenant stuff. What can we, how can we apply any of this? Well, here's what I want to say. The table throughout the Bible is such a powerful picture, not just because it's a picture of God's provision for you, but because it's a picture also of God's presence with you. The table is the means by which God shares community with his people. That's what we're learning from all these meals in the Old Testament. In other words, it's impossible to fully separate out the food on the table from the communion around the table. Imagine being invited over to dinner by somebody or a couple or a family that you've been looking forward to get to know. You know maybe there's a neighbor or a friend, someone you met here at church, whatever, and you're excited about getting to know them better and you show up on time and they answer the door and they welcome you in, they hand you a drink and then they lead you to a beautiful table like this, spread out with amazing food and already you're getting more and more hungry as you smell the delicious food. But right before you all sit down together, they say, we're out of here. We're gonna go see a movie. But we've provided everything you need. In fact, there's more on the stove if you're still hungry. You know, and drinks are in the fridge. Here's your provision. We'll leave you alone to enjoy it. I, you'd say, what? <laughs> because the point of the invitation was not the provision. The provision is a means to an end for the fellowship, for the community. You see, we recognize this. Listen to this. God's deepest desire for you is far more than his provision only. His deepest desire for you is his presence with you. To engage you relationally, to be with you. That's the whole point of all of the biblical narrative. God seeking out the people who have wandered away and bringing them back into table fellowship. So let me get real practical. Here's what this means. All of us have some provision in our lives. You know, you're, you're wearing clothes. Um, I'm guessing not many people came here hungry this morning. Not many people will go to bed hungry. We've got some food. Most of us, probably all of us in this room will have a place to lay tonight, a house. Most of us, a lot more than we need. How about our jobs, our careers, our marriages, for those of you that are married, friendships that we have, all these things, children, grandchildren, it's all provision from God. And I want you to hear this. It's wonderful. And it's a means to an end. It's not the end. The end is God himself. The end is not the gifts, but the giver. So don't let your joy terminate with the gifts of God. God spreads tables of provision in your life in order to meet you around the table, to invite you in and say, eat and drink. It's all for me. And I'm here with you as you eat it, as you drink it. Let's fellowship together. 
Now here's the thing. Sometimes your table is not all you wish it was. Sometimes the provision is not what you think it should be. You look at your table and you say, well, yeah, I've got some grapes and I've got some bread, but where's the meat? We tend to look at our tables and we see what lacks more than we see what's there. And there are some particular seasons of our lives that we refer to as wilderness seasons where we look around and we say, is God gonna spread a table for me in this wilderness or not? The invitation is always the same. God would invite you around the table of his provision no matter what is there and what is not there. And he would say, listen, I am enough. I am enough. Be with me. Eat with me. Drink with me. Whether you consciously know it or not, God's presence is what your heart longs for more than anything else. At the center of the human soul is this core desire to be known. Right? This, this, is, this is why love and acceptance are such a big deal to us. And they really are. If you take a few minutes just to kind of slow down your lives and really do some reflecting, we all get to that place. It's at the end of the day, I, I want to be known and accepted. I want to be loved. I want to be in a community of care and concern. I want to be seen. The best marriages model that, but they're a shadow of the real thing. The best families model that, shadow. The best friendships model that, just a shadow of the real thing. The great lie that we tend to believe is that we can find true satisfaction in the stuff of God, but apart from the presence of God. Here's what's true. A table without the Lord's presence will never satisfy your soul. And this is some of your stories. Because you're like, well, I do the church thing, but I don't know that I really am experiencing any kind of fellowship communion with God. Like, I don't really know that that relationship's really that strong. Or some of you, I haven't been in church. In fact, it's kind of a weird miracle that I'm actually here right now. What's actually been happening, what's been going on in your soul and your heart, is you're trying to get acceptance. You're trying to get affirmation. You're trying to get significance from all these other tables. You're trying to provide for your needs materially and internally at all these other tables. A table without the Lord's presence is not a table that will satisfy your soul. Maybe some of you are here this morning because you've sensed that. David had it right when he wrote the 16th Psalm. In verse 11, we'll put it up on the screen. Here's what David had to say. Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. I want you to see how David's talking about both the provision of God in the first half of that and the presence of God in the back half of that. He's saying this is where fullness of joy actually is. Now, now David had a lot. David was a king. David had everything he wanted. And he said, listen, listen. Fullness of joy is in the presence of God. That's wholehearted life. Found around a table. Now I want to invite you to close your Bibles. 
And I wanna go ahead and ask the ushers to get ready to serve the Lord's table to us. You don't need to start serving yet, but if you would just prepare to, if you'd get ready to. And while they're getting ready, I wanna talk to you about a couple of things before we celebrate the Lord's table together. You know, the people of the first covenant needed a mediator, Moses, to get between them and God. And what I love about Moses is he just wasn't this great outstanding guy apart from what God did in his life. I mean, he, he, he stumbled, he mumbled, he stuttered. He was hiding from God. He had a backstory. He was covered in shame. God had to call him out of all of that stuff in order to use him to lead the people. Moses provided a way for the people to get to God's presence, but Moses eventually failed. Moses got angry at God at times. In, in one very significant moment after the, the covenant happened years later, he disobeyed and tried to provide for the people through his own resources, Moses' own resources, rather than letting Moses' will and God's will mold together. As a consequence of that, he was not able to enter into the rest of the promised land on, on this side of death. Throughout the rest of Israel's story, the people would say, if only... We could have another Moses. If only we had another intercessor, another mediator to help us experience God. But if only the Moses we could have wouldn't fail and wouldn't die. If only we could have another human being that would lead us back to the table of fellowship with God. And in the fullness of time, God sent his son. A man who didn't fail, a human being whose will was so perfectly melded with his father's that he was one with him. Like Moses, Jesus climbed up a hill to intercede with God on behalf of the people. But unlike Moses, Jesus didn't eat the sacrifice. He became the sacrifice. His blood was poured out over the people so that we could enter into a new covenant a new fellowship, a new relationship. Jesus' body became a fellowship offering that was not burnt up and consumed, but was offered to us to say, eat it, drink it, and as you do, you enter into fellowship with me. Go ahead and ask the ushers to start passing out the elements. Here's what I want to invite you to this morning. I want to invite you to this table that's being passed around. And, and this table is for everyone who's put your faith in Jesus Christ at any point in your life. If you're willing to say, I, I realize that I cannot find fullness of joy apart from the presence of God. Jesus is the way through his life, death, and resurrection. He's the mediator that I need. If you've come to that point any time in your life, maybe this morning for the first time, take it. Take it. Take the bread. Take the cup. I want to talk to some of you that don't believe that yet. Like you've come here not really knowing what you believe or maybe you've heard something today that for the first time you're like, oh, never thought of that before and you're actually ready to believe. Take the food. Take it. It's the body of Christ for you. It's the blood of Christ for you. It's your provision so that you can eat in communion with your creator around a table so that you can be brought back into relationship with him. What better way to put your faith in Christ right now, right now, and by saying, I believe in taking it, take the food and eat. Listen, I know this is a weird thing we do. Jesus said, this is my body. This is my blood. Eat it, drink it. But do you see what all this was pointing to? 
Will you not take it? Will you not eat what is offered to you? Will you not believe in the body and blood of Jesus shed for you and enter into communion with your creator?